This is Everyday Wellness, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve your health and wellness goals and provide practical strategies that you can use in your real life. And now, here is your host, nurse practitioner Cynthia Thurlow. Today, I had the opportunity to record with the amazing Megan Ramos. We recorded previously on episode 116, and today we really dove into a lot of the myths and fear-mongering around women and intermittent fasting. We talked about the evolution of the agricultural and processed food industry, the role of food addiction and hyperpalatable, highly salted and sugared foods, the role of the pandemic and stress and cortisol and its negative impact on hormones. We talked about different types of fat, you know, specifically visceral or subcutaneous fat and the role of TOFI, which is thin on the outside, fat on the inside, hidden sources of inflammation, specifically how to address different types of fasting in women, both those that are still cycling versus menopause, the role of PCOS, the impact of fasting on thyroid health, the beauty of the Dutch dried urine test, how to debunk plateaus and troubleshooting while fasting. I hope we will enjoy this conversation. Obviously, Megan and I are very aligned and very much believe that it's important that women understand that fasting is a sustainable lifelong strategy. Megan, it's so nice to reconnect with you for listeners. Megan and I connected on episode 116. It's hard to believe we're close to 200 published episodes. Welcome back. (laughs) Thanks for having me back, Cynthia. That's awesome. Congratulations on all the amazing episodes. Yeah, yeah. You know, the thing I've come to find about podcasting, it's probably one of my top one or two favorite things I do in my business because it gives me opportunities to connect with so many amazing people in the health and wellness space. I really feel very, very grateful But I'd love to kind of start our discussion today. Obviously, we're two women clinicians that, and obviously you're also a researcher, but in this fasting space, helping women to find a strategy that's effective that they can do throughout their lifetime. And one thing that troubles me, and one of the reasons why I wrote a book on this is that there's so much fear mongering about women and fasting. And I know this is something that you probably also, you find from a source of frustration. So let's start the conversation there about the fact that this is an amazing strategy for women to embrace. And obviously we have to tweak things a little bit when we're women, but let's start the conversation there. There's so many myths and misconceptions out there when it comes to females. And I just feel so bad for women out there that are trying to navigate all of this. And that's why I, you know, I love doing interviews uh, with women like yourself to really help bust all of these myths. So there's just so many from fasting is going to, like say you're a woman and menstruating, thinking about potentially fertility or you're in that fertility journey that, you know, fasting is going to screw up your menstrual cycle. Fasting is going to lead to infertility or fasting just isn't safe for female hormones in general with really no rhyme or reason, or it's not an effective strategy for menopausal, postmenopausal women for weight loss. I just think it's going to kill your thyroid function. It's like never ending when it comes to women and fasting. And, you know, I was 27 when I first started fasting. I was so sick from type 2 diabetes. I gained a bunch of weight, couldn't figure out why. 
had PCOS, had fatty liver, you know, the whole, whole kitten and caboodle of metabolic symptoms and diseases. And, you know, I had literally had nothing left to lose. So you hear all of this stuff and I just jumped in. And it, if anything, it's just enhanced every aspect of my health and my quote unquote female health too. And we've seen it with thousands and thousands of women over the years in the clinic, like we're monitoring their blood work in line. We're working with their physicians and looking at all of their labs and how well they're doing. And every day there's a new baby. Every day there's reduced symptoms of PMS and regular menstrual cycles. Every day there's a woman that is 60 years old and is just losing so much body fat and seeing a decrease in appetite and feeling so good. So it's just so bizarre, all these myths and misconceptions. And then just in general, those that affect women and men, like reduction in metabolic rate, which we have so many great RCTs out now to show that that's just such garbage. Uh, and the same with lean mass, like fasting is just going to eat away at your muscle mass. And we have all of the stored food energy in our fat cells. It literally makes no sense. And, you know, fortunately too, in the last uh, several years, there's been some really great randomized control trials, which are the gold standard in medical research. Not, not that they don't have their own flaws, but it is what we consider the gold standard, just totally demonking that myth and, and how fasting is not just great for maintaining your lean mass and maintaining your resting metabolic rate, but that is far superior to traditional calorie restriction diets too. Well, and I think it's really important for us to kind of unpack a lot of these myths and misconceptions and to do it in a very loving way, which I know that you and, and Jason do really understanding that there's some fear-based methodology behind all this fear-mongering, that people are so fearful that they'll lose something as opposed to gaining, like gaining your health. And obviously we know fasting is aligned with the ancestral health patterns. You know, food scarcity was a real thing before refrigeration and certainly way before the advent of the processed food industry. And so I remind women all the time that eating less often, however you want to define it, eating less often, time-restricted eating, intermittent fasting is really the way that our bodies are designed to thrive. And so we aren't designed to be having mini meals and snacks and meals all day long. In fact, I, I cringe, you know, in my I have very athletic teenage boys now, but when they were young, younger, we would pack snacks because inevitably they just couldn't eat enough food in a meal. Yeah. To, but that's a very different process, but we kind of take that same methodology and we apply it to when we become preteens and teenagers and young adults. And yet we don't realize that that onslaught of calories is really making us very metabolically sick. And there's one study from UNC from 2018, and I'm sure the data is actually worse now, you know, during the course of the pandemic, but really looking at metabolic health and why we need to be talking to all of our patients about this. It should not just be you know, a few enlightened individuals that are out there that are talking about it, but it really should be a platform that all clinicians are standing on with their patients. It shouldn't be that fasting is considered to be trendy or in vogue or popular. You know, that's the, the common misnomers that people think low carb or keto is trendy. And I have to remind people that this is very aligned with the way that our bodies are ideally supposed to be running. You know, if we want to talk about efficiency, this is a super efficient way to live our lives, to not be focused on food. I would much rather get, you know, my to-do list done and my work day done and not be thinking, oh my gosh, I'm so hangry. I have to grab something fast. 
several or a few years ago when I was living in Toronto. So I live in sunny California, although today is like the one rainy day <laughs> this quarter of the year. But I hail from Toronto, Canada. So we are wimpy Canadians. <laughs> we truly are. We don't get that. Our summers are 100 degrees Fahrenheit, but our winters, we do have a couple of months where it hits minus 40 Fahrenheit, which is the same in Celsius. And so one February, I was giving this interview to this news outlet in Dallas, Texas. So Dallas's climate, well, it can get chilly, much nicer than Toronto. And I'm looking out the window while I'm on the phone with this woman, and she's just trying to rail me on about how fasting is this fat. And I just said to her, you know, yes, throughout human history, we did develop, you know, these means of food preservation before modern agriculture. But I mean, that's still relatively recent human history. Now, I would argue that for a large part of human history, we've, you know, we've thrived, we've gotten to this point now, I would not say we're thriving as a species now, because we're starting to see, you know, our life expectancy decline at, at this day and time. But you know, in Till like the 1970s, you know, we were really kind of thriving as a species. How did we get there to the point where we're thriving? And I said, you know, I'm in Toronto right now. It is minus 45 outside and it is not going to be nice. Like there is nothing growing, you know, animals are in hibernation. So in, you know, years and years ago, like I wouldn't be eating until April or May. Like I would have had to come up with this mechanism where I would store food energy and be able to retrieve it as I needed it during this time, kind of like an animal in hibernation almost. And said, obviously we did it, you know, we're still here, we are here. And while our health is declining right at this present time, we, you know, through human history have thrived to this point. And she kind of paused for a second. I said, listen, like there's snow and there's bark outside my window. And there are many people all over the world in this particular climate. Not everybody's living in, you know, what is presently the Bay Area weather, where it's quite the steady all year long. So there just wasn't food available. It, so it really isn't a trendy diet. You, we've gone through these periods of time where there's days, weeks, or even months throughout human history where we just haven't had access to these food resources. And we've had to find mechanisms of storage and and being able to retrieve that energy for when we needed it until food became available. You know, cavemen didn't wake up and go to their caveman refrigerators and pull out some eggs or their caveman cupboards and get their cereal. And a friend of mine, Nick Vailer, He's another researcher in the low-carb community, great guy. We're at dinner pre-pandemic in London when people could gather. <laughs> and we were talking to some professional rugby players about you know, fasting and low-carb or different types of low-carb approaches like the ketogenic diet. And he made this great point. You know, throughout human history, water has also been scarce. But you don't see people seeing a faucet and turning it on and just sitting there for hours, just guzzling, guzzling water. We drink when we're thirsty and we don't drink when we're not thirsty. And now we've got some mixed up signals with that. But that's just generally it. You rarely see someone be able to have the capacity to binge on water. But with food, I mean, food throughout modern agriculture and food processing has been so designed 
to be addictive, you know, through uh, the addition of sugar and then just copious quantities of salt and just all of this, uh, you know, refined and processed fats and just made to be super addictive. So, you know, people think that, you know, it's sort of this instinct. And yes, it is. I mean, for many years, our whole job was to hunt and gather and as a species, but, you know, we're not binging on water. It's not happening. So the food that we eat today is nothing like the food that we ate throughout human history. So they're saying you need to have all of the snacks and all of this garbage and all of this processed stuff, you know, to help you get through the day. And none of it really makes any sense. And it's all designed to be highly addictive, have this really strong neurochemical results or impact that makes us just want to see it every time we have it. And, you know, I'm uh, 10 years reversed my type 2 diabetes now. And, you know, there's still I'm having a bad day. And you walk by that bakery and you can smell or you can see something. And I just have to take a deep breath and be like, Megan, you know, that doesn't serve you. But that's just that whole neurochemical response of knowing I'm going to get that, you know, dopamine happy hit, you know, that's going to make me feel better in the short term and not binging on water. So the food industry, the whole system is just so out of sync. What we're doing now is new. It's not what we've done throughout human history is eat all these times throughout the day. I don't always tell people like, you want to reduce obesity rates by about 50% or diabetes, like just cut out snacking, like absolutely just cut it out. And all of a sudden we're going to see huge reductions in cardiovascular disease and diabetes and infertility and thyroid disorders and autoimmune disease. Like we just need to stop eating as, as much. And you pointed out, you know, sort of the freedom that you have and I'm I'm in the middle of (laughs) moving again and you know launching stuff for January and getting programs all sorted out and so busy and I feel so liberated that oh I don't have to force myself to cook and make all these meals or experience guilt for not being able to I can go about my day, do what I need to do. And when my day is over, make a meal and not be rushed or pressured, I can make the food that I want to have and have a proper meal at that time. So it just gives you so much freedom too. I think that's a really important distinction that people come from this place of lack in so many ways are so focused on what they're going to quote unquote miss as opposed to what they gain. And I feel in many, many ways, the one thing that women will consistently say is that all of a sudden their focus isn't on food in their next meal, their focus is connection or, you know, being productive or efficient. And much to your point about the changes that have happened in the last, you know, 50 years, which let's be really clear, I was privy to see Vinnie Torrich's upcoming documentary preemptively because we did a podcast together recently and he had a photo from the 1970s. And then he had a photo from the 1990s and it was actually looking, actually, it's actually late 1960s, but it was looking at the first Woodstock versus the 1990s version. And you can't imagine how different the bodies looked, you know, 1960s looked lean and healthy, 1990s looked completely the opposite. And so you, you think about the trajectory of the things that have changed and you know, whether it's been high fructose corn syrup or the addition of seed oils, uh, but these highly processed, hyper palatable foods that are essentially eroding all of our health. 
And for many people, they assume when they go to the grocery store, everything is healthy. They assume that if it's in a box, a bag or a can, that it had to have been had met some type of nutritional guidelines to be able to be processed. And it couldn't be farther from the truth. And so I, I think it really starts with understanding it all starts with food and nutrition and what we choose to put in our bodies. And I love that you make the point of saying, like, if we just stop snacking, like that could be the first step to embracing metabolic health because our bodies never get an opportunity to use up the fuel. It's almost as if, if we think about our bodies as a car, we're not waiting till the gas tank gets low. We're, you know, 90% full tank and we're filling it up again. And it's just falling out of the gas tank all over the side of the car, but we don't even see it as being a problem. We don't see the inflammation. We're not recognizing the signs that we're seeing where, you know, we don't even associate hunger with eating. We've gotten so uncomfortable feeling hungry. And, and I remind my kids, like being hungry is a good thing. Like it's a privilege. It's a good thing that we get hungry because it's a sign that our body's getting closer to needing more food, but it doesn't mean we have to eat immediately. Or, you know, what I do find is a lot of people are so accustomed to eating so frequently that there's a, this whole emotional component, psychological component to eating less often that for them can be very triggering on many levels. I'm sure you probably see that with your own patients. Yeah, you see it all of the time and people just don't know anymore and their hormones are so screwed up. Um, you know, the more body fat you store or the more body fat you have, the more you're at risk for developing something called leptin resistance, where your body just doesn't recognize that you are satiated. And if your brain is not experiencing, so in our hypothalamus is where we primarily have these leptin receptors. So when we eat, our body you know, produces this hormone, this protein signaling hormone called leptin. And its job is to cross into the blood-brain barrier, into the hypothalamus, engage with leptin receptors, which then tells our body, hey, you know, you're full. You've got enough stored fuel. Like, so it's kind of like, you know, checking your bank account balance. It's like, oh, this is good. And so when you've got enough stored fuel, your body turns off it, your appetite because it means you have money to do fun metabolic things like exercise or pregnancy, you know, these things like renovating your kitchen. If you've got a big enough balance in your bank account, you're like, oh, okay, I can renovate. I can stop saving now. I've saved the X number of thousands of dollars is going to be to buy all new kitchen appliances. But what happens is eventually the, the leptins unable to engage with those leptin receptors. And we're still trying to understand why, and there's different philosophies, and, you know, even just the fact that more fat produces more inflammation. And that inflammation produces C-reactive protein and the C-reactive protein binds to the leptin, even preventing it from going into the brain. So when our brain thinks that we're low in leptin, because it's not engaging with any, it's going to cause our appetite to go up. And also we know that it actually affects our taste buds. So when leptin levels are low, you know, we are craving for sweet foods as well. So, you know, hormonally, you know, as we gain weight, we don't even know. And like our bodies are almost tricked into thinking that, you know, it, it, we need to eat 
right? You just, your leptin is not able, you've got this leptin resistance, you're not able to engage with your own leptin. So you're just chronically hungry all of the time. And this is where strategies like fasting and lower carb diets, and even just like not snacking, not eating before bed, have a huge impact at re-regulating your appetite. And one of the most <laughs> rewarding things is, is when you always meet a patient or someone new to fasting and you tell them, okay, this is what you're going to do. And we're going to start working on this in terms of your diet. And they look at you like a deer in the headlights. Like there's no way they haven't gone more than like two hours of not eating you know, while they're awake for like the last 10 years. But as soon as you do it, it has such a profound impact that, you know, suddenly people are offering you food, but you can't eat it or you're no longer attracted to that particular food. You know, I remember the first time I tried dark chocolate, I thought it was tasted like dirt. And now I, I find like 100% dark chocolate to actually be pretty sweet and certain non-starchy vegetables, I can even taste the sweetness of them now. 10 years ago, Megan would have just thought that I was crazy. So, you know, at a certain point, our bodies are so out of control. You know, we never really know we're hungry, if we're satiated, what's really going on. It's a hot mess. Like our, you know, this whole modern industrialization of agriculture and processed and refined foods has just been such a disaster. And, you know, I really harp on snacking because so many snack foods are processed and refined sugars, processed and refined fats. So they're just loaded with seed oils and high fructose corn syrup. And, you know, there are healthier options, sure, but you're going to get a lot of that garbage in most of the snack foods that are out there. Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep challenges. And we know that one of many contributory reasons for poor sleep can be a reduction in specific minerals that help regulate sleep quality, including magnesium, which is involved in GABA, which is our body's main calming neurotransmitter. We also know that we need potassium to create melatonin. And this is a hormone that is a master antioxidant, but is also utilized to help induce sleep. We also think about things like zinc, which can balance excitatory neurotransmitters like glutamate. And if it's overactive, meaning if your glutamate levels are too high, it can prevent your brain from becoming more relaxed and inducing sleep. And lastly, selenium increases both our deep sleep and sleep duration. All these minerals matter a lot for sleep and any imbalances or deficits can have a major impact on the quality of sleep you get each night. And that's why I love Beam Minerals. They offer a full spectrum mineral supplement that gives you every essential mineral your body needs in the right doses, all in a highly absorbable liquid form. All you do is take a shot of bean minerals about an hour before bed. Don't worry, it tastes like water. And you'll replenish all of your body's minerals in about 30 seconds and give your brain what it needs for deep restorative sleep. I've been using this product over the last several months. I've really been impressed with the improvement in my sleep metrics, which I like to share on social media with my followers. And if you want a simple way to improve your sleep, head over to www.beaminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. That's www.beaminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. Today's podcast is sponsored by Nutrisense. 
It combines cutting edge technology and human expertise. So you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress, exercise, sleep, and where you are in your menstrual cycle in real time. And by pairing a continuous glucose monitor with their app and expert nutritional guidance, NutriSense can help you reach your health goals. And the best part is it's not just a program where they send you the CGM and you have to figure it out on your own. Each subscription plan includes one month of free expert nutritionist support. Your nutritionist will work with you one-on-one interpreting your data and providing customized advice to help you reach your health goals. The last time I had my CGM on, my registered dietitian and I troubleshooted over some specific concerns that I had. And whether you're aiming to lose weight, stabilize your energy, or just feel better overall, NutriSense offers the guidance and support you need. And lasting sustainable change takes time and can be achieved through a longer term subscription. That's why I encourage my patients and clients to consider three, six, or 12 month subscriptions where it's actually less expensive and allows you to not only achieve your goals, but also to ensure that you stick to your healthy lifestyle for the long term. As I've mentioned before, I have found the CGMs I've used through NutriSense to be incredibly insightful, specifically to carbohydrate tolerance. I would not have known that plantains spiked my blood sugar without this information. It's also been hugely helpful for tailoring to workouts and sleep quality. And so for me, even though I am metabolically healthy, I find the insights to be particularly helpful to tailor my lifestyle changes to my blood sugar. Visit NutriSense.io slash EWP and use the code EWP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients. Oh, I agree with you. And I think leptin resistance is poorly understood. And I remind people that oftentimes that goes along with insulin resistance. So if insulin's up, you're going to struggle to lose weight. If leptin is dysregulated, you're going to struggle to lose weight. Another hormone that I really think about in the context of the pandemic is cortisol. You know, the amount of people who've just been stressed at home, stress eating and cortisol's up, you're not going to make good food choices. And, you know, more often than not, I'm seeing, you know, stressed women making poor food choices, not feeling satiated. If you're not satiated, you're going to continue to eat. You're probably going to crave hyperpalatable sugary foods, which are going to further drive up that insulin and, and exacerbate the, the leptin resistance. So it becomes this very circuitous conversation and understanding that all these hormones, it really is a hormone issue. You know, anytime anyone's struggling to lose weight, I remind them, please stop counting calories. I'm not suggesting in any way that you don't need to be conscientious. However, it's a hormonal imbalance that drives a lot of decision-making process. And it can be so sophisticated that it can override all these other mechanisms in our bodies that are designed to let us know you're full, stop eating. They all dysregulate this. And and more often than not, when I start talking about the hormone piece, I think people are reassured because they've been shamed for so long that there's Mm -hmm. something intrinsically wrong with them because they don't or they're incapable or struggling to limit what they're eating or to not overeat certain foods. And I always remind them like the binge worthy foods are designed to be that way. That is they're designed to override every mechanism in our bodies. And it is not a willpower issue. 
it's really this neuro, as you mentioned, this neurochemical neuroendocrine issue in their bodies that, you know, they're this bliss point, you know, there's a great book called salt, sugar, fat. And I always use this as a reference point. It's disgusting when you think about the processed food industries that they design testing. So they bring in children, adults, and they try out like, where's the bliss point? Where is the most sugar in this item? I'm using that as a good example for the highest fat content that people can't stop eating it. And that's how they develop these products. They design them to be as addictive and seductive as possible. It kind of makes me laugh a little bit. So a couple of years ago, I was at this conference talking about healthcare solutions. And there's this one massive dessert manufacturer, um, popular North, all throughout North America. And they were there because they were experiencing a crisis, like an HR crisis. They could no longer afford their insurance premiums for their employees. Diabetes, cardiovascular disease, all of it was running rampant and they just could not afford their health insurance premiums. So they were looking for out-of-the-box solutions. And I was chatting with them a bit and I found out that they do mandatory taste testing of their dessert products with their employees and I'm like just stop that like just just stop that but it's uh you know it's like they're causing their own gamut of problems there but it's it's really just uh you know we're so backwards in the mentality here and that I to go to your point there's so much fear-mongering when it comes to to fasting and just none of it is really unfounded and and I feel especially bad for women in particular and I know men are under a lot of stress but we got women right now that in COVID so many of them sacrifice their careers or they're trying to work from home and also do homeschooling it's just absolutely mind-blowing the amount of stress that has happened and they're already pre-pandemic have been blamed for their weight lack of willpower, lack of effort, you know, not being strict enough, not doing well enough. And I mean, when you think about it, they've only ever done calorie restriction diets, whether it's packed as smoothie shakes, soups, fish, whatever it is, is like different types of toilet paper. It's still toilet paper. It might be, you know, Costco brand versus a grocery store brand, but it's still toilet paper. So there's all these diets we've tried, but they've all been founded on calories in, calories out, calorie reduction as a primary. So women have been doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. And we know that's the definition of insanity, but this is what their doctors are telling them to do. This is what society or governments here in Canada and the US are telling them to do. It's not working, it's getting worse. And then we have got clobbered by this COVID pandemic and the stress, and it's just sort of further adding fuel to the fire and women are blaming themselves now more than ever, you know, for where their health is at. I hear it every single day. And I think we're so used to medicine just to be isolating everything. Like we've, I think we've gone down this extreme specialization pitfall in Western medicine where, you know, you'll go to like, I'll be quite blunt. My background's in nephrology kidneys. You go there and we look at your kidneys on your blood pressure a bit because they're controlled by your kidneys. You got a cardiac issue. 
got a cramp somewhere, that's not our problem, like go somewhere else. And then you go to your cardiologist and, you know, you're having flank pain. That's not their issue. You know, go to somebody else, everybody's so isolated. So I think society has this, you know, preconception now that like everything is so isolated. So their stress has nothing to do with their weight gain. Their stress has nothing to do with their blood sugar levels, but we need to remember that the body is a whole system. And, you know, if there's one hormonal imbalance, it's likely to trigger others. So like you mentioned, the stress, you know, triggering high glucose, which triggers high insulin, which triggers high appetite hormone, which decreases, you know, satiation signaling, like it is all one big system. And I saw this meme on Instagram, <laughs> I don't even know, but stress really undoes all of our great efforts with our diet. And the last two years, and I think we're going into another year of weirdness, you know, with this COVID pandemic. And we spend so much time trying to educate people that no, it is a whole encompassing system. And we've got to work on all of it because it all works together, either very harmoniously, or it's just going to cause chaos amongst the whole system together. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. My background's in ER medicine and cardiology and we very much in cardiology would decide you're in a cardiology bucket or no, I got to send you back to your primary or I have to send you to another specialist. And we really have to take ownership of the recognition that if metabolic disease is really going to be met head on, we have to look at it globally as in we all work together to make, you know, a society, a group of people, a group of patients healthier. And the communication piece has to be better. I, I know that and this is not a criticism because at the time I didn't recognize it any differently, but I recognize that at some point in my career, I contributed to that problem. Because yeah. I would send patients back, you've got a thyroid problem. Well, you're not in myxedema coma and you're not in thyroid storm. So I technically in the hospital don't have to deal with this. You know, we would call it the primary yeah. and say, what should we do with their thyroid medications? But I think there needs to be more ownership. And I agree with you that way that medicine has started going defaulting towards specialization is because quite frankly, you know, you have physicians graduating from medical school that have such massive burdens from their student loan debt that they have to do specialization because they can't afford, even if they want to do primary care, unless they're independently wealthy, someone gifted them a bunch of money or they end up in the military, at least here in the United States. So I know a lot of my colleagues ended up in expensive specialties because they had a lot of student loan debt to unburden. But one of the things I really want to make sure we touch on is really digging into the women and fasting piece. Now, mm -hmm. I seem to have quite a few women that are that have PCOS. And so for those that are listening, this is polycystic ovarian syndrome. And not every person with PCOS is obese. And this is this common misnomer. There can be this thin phenotype, meaning thinner women can also be insulin resistant. These are people that are typically struggling with fertility. And they may you know, not be able to conceive. They may have a luteal phase defect, meaning their progesterone levels are, are too low in the second half of their menstrual cycle. Let's start there because I know, you know and we've had Nadia on um, as this is her expertise. Let's talk about the research that's being done and the, the success that you yourself have seen with women in PCOS, because I think this is a great starting point because it does impact such young women. You know, when you're, Beyond the age that you want to have children, it's probably less of an issue, but it's still speaking to insulin resistance. And so fasting can be particularly helpful with this disorder. Yeah, absolutely. I was actually 14 when I was diagnosed with PCOS and I was six then. My BMI was 17. So I was classified as sort of that 
underweight, just borderline underweight. And I remember I was at the hospital for sick children in Toronto, which is like one of the best pediatric hospitals in the world. And I just remember the specialist looking at my parents and I was having a lot of like little cyst rupture and abdominal pain because of it or pelvic pain. And as they said, it doesn't make any sense. She'll get her out of it. She's so skinny. You know, luckily she didn't get your genes was their attitude. And hopefully she stays that way. And I never grew out of it. And in hindsight, I actually did do quite a lot of fasting. I didn't eat very well. And that's why I had PCOS in the first place. But I did do a lot of fasting. So it didn't get better and get worse very much throughout my life span. But the whole point is that insulin, like insulin in general promotes growth. And growth when you're younger is, is the appropriate amount of growth directed at the right things is good. You want to grow to be a healthy height and have, you know, muscle mass that supports your joints and your organs. But then there's a the thing such as too much growth that can occur. So insulin, too much insulin can result in this unwanted growth. And, you know, eventually once we have a good amount of muscle mass and we're a good size, you know, we really as humans don't want to be experiencing any extra growth unless it's in the time of pregnancy. And that is sort of the one acceptable time Time of growth in adult life is you are growing life within your body. So having this excess insulin, it can lead to growths like uh, cysts, the multiple cysts on your ovaries, which then can disrupt your ovaries, produce a lot of your sex hormones, and it can disrupt, you know, how much or when and all of your sex hormones pretty much. And it can lead to conditions like infertility, it can lead to obesity, it can lead to sort of unwanted things like facial hair and thyroid disorder. So I mean, it can happen and it doesn't need to be a disease of obesity necessarily. It's a disease of excess insulin. And it's also important to really sort of understand obesity in general. You know, I noted that I was young and I was classified as underweight, but it's not really about weight. It's about body composition. And in hindsight, I was a little sack of fat. Like, uh, sure, I didn't weigh very much, but I was a little sack of fat. I never had energy. I loathe playing sports. Probably because anytime I fell, I broke something. I had brittle bones, you know. So while the number on the scale didn't say very much, the majority of what that came from was from fat. I didn't have a lot of muscle. I didn't have a lot of bones. And the scale just tells us the total amount of weight. It doesn't tell us how much fat you have or how much fat you don't. You know, I am 120 pounds to date and I wear a size two, but I've been 97 pounds and I've worn a size five. So, you know, at 120 pounds, I have more muscle mass and I have less fat mass than I did at 97 pounds. So it's really about sort of a body composition. And Nadia, you mentioned Nadia. Nadia has been a stick, you know, <laughs> her whole life, but she was what we call a tofi, thin on the outside and fat on the inside. And, you know, what we see with a lot of these particular individuals too, is there's different types of body fat, just very generally speaking. So we've got visceral fat, which penetrates in our organs and around our organs. And then we've got subcutaneous fat and subcutaneous fat sits sort of underneath the skin, layering our belly, but above our cavity wall. So our organs, glands, everything are sort of protected by this cavity wall, this abdominal cavity, we call it like a shield almost. And a lot of subcutaneous fat will sit on top of that shield, but below the skin. And we look at that and, you know, when we see that amount of, we see fat accumulated there, we know it's 
probably not going to be healthy if we keep accumulating it. And it's not necessarily we'll want to show off on, on a bathing suit on the beach, but it's really that fat that hides in and around the organs. That's causing a lot of complications. It's preventing the organs and glands from interacting with each other, signaling each other properly, preventing them from functioning properly. And this summer, we lost a family member. She was 33 years old. She had kids. We are not quite sure how because she's super PCOS, but she had a six-year-old and a one-year-old, but she died from fatty liver disease. And she was five foot eight and 103 pounds soaking wet. And her whole life had been a total rail, but she was very fat on the inside. Her liver was extremely fat and it got to the point where it started to harden and prevent the liver from functioning properly. So you, you know, it's actually these skinnier individuals with metabolic disease that are at, you know, sort of this extreme risk for very serious complications because the type of fat that they have is really causing a lot of metabolic damage, a lot of damage to their whole body systems. So in terms of the PCOS and women with PCOS, you know, you don't have to be overweight yet. PCOS can eventually lead to obesity if you're not overweight, but it's just a disease of too much insulin and that insulin causing excess growth and that growth causing disease and further hormonal chaos and unwanted complications like infertility, for example. Well, I'm so sorry to hear about the loss of your family member. And I think it just really redefines the need for people to understand the difference between subcutaneous versus visceral fat and how that can change the way that our organs and our body communicates with one another. Now, when we're thinking about someone that doesn't have PCOS, women that are getting a regular menstrual cycle, we're assuming you're ovulating. Do you have any restrictions, recommendations around their type of fasting? Because this is where I think I see the most fear mongering going on. Now, obviously a very lean athletic woman, like an athlete, which is a very small percentage of the population probably needs to have more food intake given her training than the average person. And so this is always the place I come from that the average woman is not an athlete and is not, you know, heading to the Olympics. I think that's a very different subsect of the population, but the average woman who's still getting a menstrual cycle, still in her fertile years, I would imagine much like I do, I have no problems. In fact, I think it in many ways can keep their hormones better balanced, can allow them to kind of have more metabolic flexibility, being able to switch between using fat as a fuel source and carbohydrates as a fuel source. Where is your starting point or, or what is, how do you start the conversation with your female patients that fall into that age range? Yeah. So if someone was healthy and just looking to optimize their health and focus on longevity, you know, unless they are in that very, very small category of high performance athletes with extremely little amount of body fat. I mean, we can absolutely, you know, sort of fast them to keep their immunity up for anti-aging and disease prevention. We know that inducing uh, or fasting induces autophagy at a, a very efficient rate. So autophagy is this great cellular recycling physiological phenomenon. It can be induced by in very intense exercise, through very low carb diets, like ketogenic diets, but it's turned on or fasting activates autophagy in a very significant, powerful way. And in a short period of time, without a whole bunch of work for the individual to perform, you're literally just not 
doing anything, you know, when you're fasting in that sense, and you're getting all of this benefit. So when you're in autophagy, your body sort of gets this process going where it's able to identify uh, damaged and broken or old proteins and take them apart and put together new and healthy ones from its parts. And this, this is so great for disease prevention and just sort of maintaining good overall health. You know, people ask me all the time, well, why do you still fast? And, okay, so COVID's been unique. But before that, we travel, go on vacation, speaking at conferences. My circadian rhythm never knew if I was coming or going we enjoyed eating out at restaurants you know when we could find something good but you know you never know you could be eating grass-fed steak but it's cooked on um, a grill doused in uh, vegetable oils so there's always these inflammatory things popping up and so for a healthy woman that's like me it's talking about you know these sources of inflammation these other hormonal disruptors like traveling traveling the world's wonderful but it does throw off your your system quite a bit or you've got these periods of time in the year like Christmas where there's just sort of more indulgence or a vacation you know I went to Hawaii this summer and there was definitely eating a little bit more fructose than I normally would because there were things I'd never really seen before and then just eating a little bit more and days of a lot of activity and not a whole lot of activity so sort of fasting and just for that hormonal reset and with a healthy woman you know we talk about doing something like 24 hours a few times a week or even sort of on a daily basis especially Monday through Friday for those who are still working being a perfectly safe and a great way to sort of maintain your good health and continue to fight any sort of these micro instances of inflammation or hormonal disruption that you might have in your system. And then we typically to discuss you know, the benefits of occasionally doing an extended fast, anywhere from one to sort of you know, three or four times a year, just for immune boosting and just sort of a bigger hormonal cleaning or a bigger cellular cleaning. So I myself, you know, around our home, we do seasonal cleaning. So while I'm doing my seasonal cleaning in the house, I'll do seasonal cleaning in my body. So I'll have plenty of work to do around the house to keep me distracted, to keep me active. And I'll do an extended fast during that time. And it just helps tidy up all of these things in in my system. Well, I love that you have such a kind of proactive stance and, and certainly one that's very aligned with me and you know, talking about those sources of inflammation. So even for young, healthy cycling women, you know, being mindful of the quality of your food, being mindful of your sleep patterns, you know, you mentioned the travel piece and, you know, we just started to kind of get back to traveling. When I say traveling, traveling outside the U S in September, we went to Africa. Oh, wow. And so it was one of those things where it was very easy for me to jump ahead six, seven hours. It's always more brutal coming back the opposite direction, but I always use it as an opportunity to fast longer because 99.9% of the time I can't find anything decent in an airport. And the running joke is I carry meat sticks and salted macadamia (laughs) nuts in pre-portion bags in case I need something, but otherwise I just fast longer. Also really the importance of giving yourself grace and the recognition that Sometimes our busy lifestyles, we have to kind of adjust. And I love that you kind of incorporate, you know, spring cleaning in your house and giving yourself a longer fast, which is always a great thing to do. And especially given the fact we're still in this evolving, you know, pandemic situation, you know, for many people, 
one of the things that isn't spoken about on social media much at all is the role of metabolic health and susceptibility to long-term outcomes related to the pandemic. And certainly something I always say, this is what we need to be focused on is talking to people about eating less often, trying to, trying to fast for a period of time, choosing less inflammatory foods. Now, do you find that your menopausal patients have an easier time with fasting? That has certainly been my experience. I think for many of them that have really struggled and said, you know, since I hit 42, everything I used to work no longer works. And now all of a sudden at 54, they've been in menopause for a couple of years. They haven't been able to lose the weight. And all of a sudden it starts dropping effortlessly, even if they do nothing other than just cut out snacking. I'm sure you probably are seeing the same circumstances with your women as well. And one last thing that I want to tie into that is for a lot of women that are really symptomatic in perimenopause, the five to 10 years preceding menopause into menopause with hot flashes, a lot of these and motor symptoms, there's a lot of good research to suggest this is really related to insulin resistance, you know, being pre-diabetic. And so I remind women to really be mindful, like know what your fasting insulin levels are, be really mindful and attentive to those. And, you know, certainly fasting can be in many levels, a gateway to, you know, garnishing or embracing metabolic health at a level that perhaps you were less familiar with before. Yeah. Fasting is such a gift to women of all ages, but definitely that postmenopausal group, like you're saying, I tend to be, find it a little bit just more stable across, whereas a menstruating woman, we have these two cycles that sort of define us every month. So the first phase of our cycle, you know, estrogen is dominant and estrogen makes us feel good. It suppresses our appetite. It gives us energy. It makes us feel sexy and like all these wonderful things. So we joke with the ladies that are menstruating for the first two weeks of your cycle, you know, you're like a unicorn, like <laughs> nothing can touch you. You are fabulous and you can fast like a machine and you feel so good. And then in the second half of your cycle, this luteal phase of our cycle, estrogen levels go way down. And then progesterone and testosterone become more dominant, especially progesterone. And they're appetite stimulating hormones. And, you know, they tend to maybe not make us feel as sexy or as delightful. They might make us a little bit more moody and irritable and sad and sort of, you know, second guessing ourselves. So we're emotionally, you know, a little bit less insecure. And then we're just hungry all of the time. And there's so many younger women that are just wanting to rip out their hair. You know, what's wrong with me? Why am I broken? And, you know, we don't really understand. So we spent a lot of time with women in that particular age group, you know, educating them, you know, those first couple of weeks of your cycle, this is when we can go hard with the longer intermittent fast, or this is when we're going to experiment with some extended fasting. In the second half of your cycle, this is what you expect. So it's not your fault. You know, women are so told it's your fault, it's your fault, it's your fault. It is not your fault. These are hormones. This is because during this part of your cycle, this is when, you know, your body wants to be producing progesterone so it can grow life. So it can sort of attach that fertilized egg to your uterine lining and start the whole process of conceiving a baby. So this is supposed to happen. Like this is a really good and exciting thing. So they should, you know, we try to explain the whole evolutionary perspective to them. And, you know, so this is what you can focus on in terms of fasting or time-restricted eating, or even sometimes that week four of the cycle, we'll just focus on fat fasting and food quality. 
more so than any type of other fasting structure. Whereas sort of, you know, post-menopausal, you don't necessarily have these ebbs and flows of these varying hormones. So it's easier to stick with more of a consistent fasting plan. So it's not always just sort of trying to plan everything around sort of a monthly cycle. So it, it works out pretty well. And we see so many women that are sort of going through that transition with menopause and they're saying, I'm not having hot flashes anymore. You know, my body temperature is nice and stable. And I'm feeling good all of the time. I'm losing weight too. And I don't think many women realize that, you know, we have different types of estrogen in our body. We've got estradiol and that's what makes us feel sexy and lovely and delightful and suppresses our appetite. But as we get older and we accumulate body fat, our body fat actually produces this, the, the evil estrogen, estrone. And that, you know, unlike the wonderful best friend, estradiol, estrone doesn't like us. It works against us. You know, it can lead to unwanted cancers, but it also has a lot of sort of unwanted, all kinds of unwanted side effects too. And that's our fat cells are producing that, which can cause a lot of unwanted symptoms, especially as we're sort of going through transition in life. But when you lose body fat, you're actually lowering the amount of sort of the quote, quote, evil estrogen, you know, that is being produced. So you're even further feeling good and feeling optimistic and feeling like your young, sexy self again. And so many women, you know, say, hey, you know, I'm, you know, I'm 60 and I feel better than I did when I was 30 and such a different outlook on life. So fasting, especially as you get older, there's so at any age, there's so many benefits. And I think it gets easier um, as you get older too, because of the lack of flows with your menstrual cycle. And it's just efficient. It's consistent. You know, if you fast, you're going to lose weight and you're going to feel great. And there's so many great hormonal benefits of doing it. Have you guys heard about a bioactive whole food on the market with 5,000 published research studies backing it? When my oldest son needed to go on antibiotics a few months ago, I discovered Armour Colostrum and the benefits for him and his recovery from being on antibiotics have been instrumental in me now recommending this to my dairy non-sensitive patients and clients. Armour's Colostrum strengthens immunity ignites metabolism, fortifies gut health, promotes hair growth and skin radiance, and powers fitness performance and recovery. My son has mentioned to me over and over again how great his gut feels, how he has improved his digestion and gut function as well. Colostrum is a rich, exclusive source of immunoglobulins or antibodies that optimize our immune defense even during cold and flu season. And we know that mucosal barriers house over 80% of our body's immune cells, including including the antibodies IgG and SIG-A. And these immunoglobulins bind and intercept harmful particles like viruses, bacteria, and toxins, blocking them from crossing into the barriers into our bloodstream. And Armour's colostrum contains the highest levels of SIG-A and IgG to ensure your most fortified first line of protection. It's sustainably sourced. And it's important to know that you want to mix colostrum only with cold liquids or foods or dry scoop it into your mouth. This is also great for the oral microbiome. And we've worked out a special offer for my everyday wellness community where you can receive 15% off your first order. Go to try 
armra.com slash Cynthia15 or enter Cynthia15 to get 15% off your first order. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A.com slash Cynthia15. You definitely want to check it out. Weight gain is one of many symptoms that our hormones are in decline, especially as we navigate perimenopause into menopause. Dr. Anna, who is a great friend of mine, is an OBGYN who's treated thousands of women just like you and I who experience increasing dryness and even pain in the bedroom as they get older. Jolva is the solution Dr. Anna formulated for her own clients, and it has since been loved by over 100,000 women. It's a feminine cream with DHEA that helps the body regenerate moisture from the inside out. 92.8% of Jolva users experienced a significant improvement in the first four to eight weeks. Get 10% off your first purchase of Jolva by using the link dranna.com slash Cynthia. That's dranna.com Cynthia and get 10% off your first purchase. Yeah, no, and I, I think you did such a beautiful job and the acknowledgement that the first half of the menstrual cycle from the day we bleed until right before ovulation when estrogen predominates and you're right, women do feel good. This is when they can generally push their workouts. They have more energy and then the, and I'm oversimplifying it, but the latter part of the menstrual cycle when progesterone predominates. And this is oftentimes when I'll tell women, you know, the five to seven days preceding their cycle kind of back off on the stringent fasting increase your consumption of good quality carbohydrates. That's not a pig out fast on like pizza and ice cream, but whether it's sweet potato or squash or or some type of root vegetable, something that's going to help nourish your body and the recognition that you can't push your fasting, you're going to be more hungry. It's a byproduct of progesterone and decreased insulin sensitivity. I mean, your body is conditioned to want to consume a bit more macros and certainly that way. And I love kind of tying in the types of estrogen. And and I talk a lot about the Dutch hormone test, which I'm sure you probably are familiar with. And I use it in several of my group programs because it really allows women to determine, you know, where are they in their fertility or non-fertility years? How are they metabolizing their estrogen? You know, you talk about estradiol as kind of the sexy, you know, estrogen form. And then estrone is the predominant form of estrogen our body makes, unfortunately, in fat tissue as we get older. But looking at how our body breaks down and, and metabolizes estrogen is so important. Do we need more support with detoxification processes? How do we methylate? There's so much there. I think it's such a valuable test. Are you using that in your groups as well? We don't use it in the group, but we're a big proponent of it. So just do just some some technical logistics about where we're at, but it's something we recommend. I mean, it's important. You can check your hormones via your blood and you probably should, but your, our urine status of our hormones. So important. I actually have a Dutch test that I need to do in my cabinet. I did one, but my urine is too dilute. So I have to redo it, but I love it. It tells you sort of, I think, Going back to, to what we talked a little bit about stress is that I think we know that we're in stress or else it's kind of simultaneously in denial about our stress and um, seeing it on paper can really sort of, you know, make you realize you've got to get a grip on it. So, I mean, it really gives you a great cortisol profile, which can give you a lot of insight into your thyroid function. And so many of us are out there with, you know, the hypothyroidism, suboptimal hypothyroidism, reverse T3 hypothyroid, 
Hashimoto's hypothyroid. So it can give you an impact or some idea into how your stress and thyroid and adrenal glands, how all of those are in sync, testosterone, DHA, all of these other sex hormones is so important to know. And then estrogen, just because with estrogen too, you want to make sure that you are metabolizing it because when it builds up, especially the unwanted kind like estrone, you've got to make sure that you're clearing it out and not being able to clear it out efficiently can lead to a condition called estrogen dominance. And that can undo everything good that you're also trying to do with your lifestyle and cause weight gain, your abdomen, your lower half of your body and can promote insulin resistance and just sort of perpetuate the whole metabolic disease gamble. So really huge fan of like the Dutch complete plus, (laughs) but it's a worthwhile test to do for sure. I agree. And make sure if someone is ordering this test for you, that they've looked at hundreds of them because, you know, in 20 plus years of being in a clinical environment, I think it is probably a test that took me a bit of time. Like not only I take class and I have reference points, but hundreds of Dutches before I felt really proficient and inevitably people will you know, come to me with a Dutch and I'll say, what did your healthcare practitioner tell you? And they don't get a lot of information. So I think it's important if you're going to make the financial investment that you make sure the person that's interpreting it has looked at a lot of them, feels comfortable with them. One last topic I want to definitely touch on before we get to listener questions. And I want to be super mindful of your time. What is your methodology when you have patients that are dealing with plateaus? It's a source of frustration And especially with women, oftentimes, even based on research, they may not lose weight as quickly as men. So if a couple is doing intermittent fasting, inevitably the woman is frustrated because the man loses 10 pounds in a month and she's lost one or two. And so the recognition that, you know, we can have plateaus and we may not lose weight as quickly as our significant other, especially if they're male. What are some of the things you look at when women are dealing specifically with plateaus that are of concern to them? Yeah, so we spend a lot of time educating sort of on the the ebbs and flows of men versus females fasting journeys. And that, you know, it's men are more rapid at the start, females are much more slower at the start. Um, And then eventually things sort of stabilize to more of a consistent rate for men, and things pick up for women and then start to sort of stabilize the same rate. So you know, in a six month span, people are losing more or less the same amount of body fat. Now for plateaus in women, there's a few things that we we recognize here. We have something called fasting training wheels, you know, where people will have a fatty tea or fatty coffee. This is just plain green tea, but they'll add in some of that heavy whipping cream, for example. And they'll hear someone like myself or Jason say, it's okay, but it's okay like a crutch, right? Like if my sprain my ankle and I want to move across my house, it's okay for me to use crutches. But if my ankle's not sprained and I use crutches, it's just going to slow me down and be counterproductive towards my goal of trying to move over across the house to get something in an efficient manner. But it's part in our human instinct to see how far we can get away with things that we enjoy, like how much heavy cream can I have and still get results. 
so there's that problem, which is sort of the overindulgence of these quote unquote fasting fluids or fasting training wheels. And that can be really problematic. And I'll get people to measure out how much fat are you putting in your tea or coffee? And then sometimes they're like, wow, like half a cup. And it's just like, that's a lot. You know, if you're fasting for a 24 hour period, initially you're still burning off your last meal. And then if you're having half a cup of fat, I mean, that's now another six hours of fuel that you're giving your body before you're even tapping in or even starting to lower your insulin significantly to even tap into your own fat source. So we find that there's sort of this comfort creep that we're getting with these certain fasting training wheels. And then also two things like heavy cream or dairy in general, you know, we source, the source does matter. And especially going back to this conversation about estrogen, I mean, a lot of the heavy cream that you would just buy at your regular grocery store off the shelves. I mean, those cattle, the cows, they're being doped up on hormones. Many of them are pregnant, you know, while they're still giving out milk and like that, their hormones are even further exacerbated. So when we're having certain things like the, like that dairy and more regularly, we've got to be concerned about how that perhaps is impacting our hormonal health and any potential slowdowns there. So in general, in an ideal world, you know, most people would really try to sort of minimize the dairy or at least be aware a little bit more of the dairy source or switch to something. Like I will occasionally have some like raw goat milk now that I'm in California and or, you know, sort of more sheep dairy or water buffalo dairy than sort of this traditional cow dairy where I run the risk of all those hormones and pregnancies and all this crazy stuff happening. So that's sort of one thing, really sort of eliminating any potential triggers on the fasting days. And then on the eating days too, getting back to the idea of having meals. And for all the ladies out there, I don't want you to sort of roll your eyes at me <laughs> when I say this. It is tough. I only have me. I have two dogs and I have a very competent, self-sufficient partner and my husband um, who's fully capable of making his own dinner and doing all of this, and, you know, or even cooking for us all and cleaning up. But we're both busy. Life is busy. And having that time to always prepare meals is really difficult. So this is where fasting comes in. It gives you more time. So when you have time to doing that meal prep and getting back to having regular meals, stop grazing. And so often than not, I'll ask women who have hit this plateau and I'll say, please write out a food diary. And I always get the annoyance sense that they think, oh, Megan's thinking we're eating all of these carbs, you know, uh, and it's just, no, I think that you're probably just eating cheese and nuts because you can grab those easily. And I don't think you're eating real meals at all. And sure enough, there's maybe some portion of animal protein, which is great, but it's cheese and nuts. Like that is the bulk because they don't have time to prep things like vegetables or additional side dishes, nuts you grab. You literally have to do nothing other than buy them and grab them and consume them. Whereas you have to chop up vegetables, wash them, cook them, clean the pans. I get it. It's busy, but you can't have nuts and cheese cannot be side dish one and side dish two of every meal that you have. So almost 90% of the time, if I'm asking for a food diary, it's because I would bet good money 
money that that's going to be the result. And we've got to talk about what is going to fit into your, whether it's just taking some greens and throwing them into some duck fat and sauteing them. Like what is going to be a suitable solution for you? So you're not always filling up on nuts and cheese. And they see this all of the time with women. So it would be to do a trial period, trying to eliminate those foods and starting to focus on real sort of structured meals again. So, you know, cleaning up the fasting training meals, eliminating dairy, cutting out the snacks, and really making sure that you're not always trying to fill up on nuts and dairy. Well, I'm laughing because nuts and cheese are like the two areas that I always say, this is where people, well-meaning people can't self-regulate the consumption of these. It's very easy to overeat. Uh, Cheese is delicious, nuts are delicious. Unless you can portion it out and walk away, it's best not to have it. I actually stopped eating dairy three years ago because it just wasn't working well for me. And I remember there was a whole withdrawal period. I mean, I'm a pretty healthy eater, you know, no gluten, no grains, but getting rid of dairy was challenging. But once I did, I came to find out that I definitely, even though I wasn't eating it very often, it was very hard help, very difficult to self-moderate. So that's super helpful. I know all of those tips are going to be helpful. A couple of questions. I have several women that when they break their fast, they get diarrhea and we have troubleshooted in 20 different directions. All of my ideas have worked except for one woman who continues and it doesn't matter. I'm like, break your fast with bone broth, break your fast with something like, you know, no matter what she consumes, she has significant diarrhea. And so curious to know what your suggestions or what have been some of the things that have worked well for your ladies in particular. Yeah, absolutely. So the biggest triggers we found have been eggs and nuts. Those sort of induce the most loose stools and the most nausea. So cutting that out. Um, Some people really struggle with meats, and so they'll stick to poultry and fish. And if they're more carnivore, a very more sort of beef-centric carnivore, this would be more of a time to sort of grind your beef, even if you do it yourself at home because you're nervous about bacteria and don't want to buy it pre-ground. Or if you have a butcher you trust and you go there and watch them grind it, but that can help because it's sort of partially digesting it for you. You got to remember your tummy has been asleep for a little bit, so to speak, when you're fasting and whatever you're, you eat, if it's difficult to digest, is going to kind of be like punching it in the face to wake up. So a big hearty steak might be like a big punch in the face, whereas something like a little bit of poultry is just more of a gentler way to sort of wake things up. We found bone broth, it is not very greasy, then that can sometimes be really helpful. But if it is more on the greasy side, that can trigger some discomfort. Tomato cucumber salad with olive oil, a little bit of balsamic vinegar and some chopped fresh parsley. Parsley really helps bulk up the stool, the vinegar and the olive oil sort of help, you know, gently nudge that digestive tract awake. And the tomato and cucumber are really easy to get going or get your system going they're very gentle on your system and they're not gonna you're not gonna have this crazy high glycemic response to them especially with the fat and the vinegar is going to help blunt that source or that uh, sugar potential increase and then having some chia seeds or slam husk in water about 30 to 60 minutes before you break your fast just adding in some of that fiber that's going to help you sort of absorb some of the water that's in your gut and help sort of bulk up some of the stools. So that can be helpful. Every now and then, all of those things fail. 
terribly. So we found that some people do respond very well to probiotics, making that be the first thing that they put in their guts. And some of our community has said it's just been their biggest savior. So having some you know very full fat yogurt, like grass fed yogurt with a little bit of chia seeds and you know some cinnamon that can help. Or if they're more on the dairy free side of things like coconut cafe or coconut yogurt, that can also help. And every now and then still we have someone with uh, Hashimoto's thyroiditis or sort of active, suddenly hyperactive thyroid, which can happen often. So if someone is hypothyroid and they're on medication, as they fast, they're going to do cellular information and get better, they might experience symptoms of hyperthyroidism. And one of a common symptom of hyperthyroidism is sort of a, like an overactive bowel. And so sometimes to us, it's a, if nothing else is working and this is a recurrent issue and we'll get them to start checking their body temperature and start to see if there's other symptoms there of hyperthyroidism, get them to check their thyroid function. And then of course, you know, take that along with their symptoms with their doctor and perhaps start to reduce their medication because we see medication for many instances having to be reduced. Uh, you know, for me, I went from two thyroid medications to one to like a 10th of the dosage of what I used to take of the one. So it can get better to a certain extent for these individuals. And then sometimes to selenium. I found in women with Hashimoto's thyroiditis, it might not necessarily be that they're having like a bit of a hyper swing, but there's more of a selenium deficiency and that seems to sort of regulate their digestive tract after this dormant period of time of not eating. When we go from having these variabilities in our food intake, that can either cause our digestive system to move rather quickly. And we find this to be more triggered in that uh, Hashimoto's thyroiditis population. And selenium seems to help balance that out. We've done micronutrient testing, and there always seems to be some deficiency in women that are experiencing this chronic loose stools. And the selenium does help quite a bit. That really makes a lot of sense because it's a cofactor for thyroid production. That really helps. Um, Two other questions, and then we're going to call it a day because I want to be respectful of your time. It's interesting. I have a group program that we do intermittent fasting, but it's a small group. And we also do the Dutch and we do the GI map. And so we do diagnostic testing. And this past time when I was detoxing some of these people who clearly based on their lab results needed support before we did anything else, I had several women, some were perimenopausal, some were menopausal that got joint pain. Like they didn't have it before. And so I have an idea. I think it might've been related to the detox itself, but are are you seeing that with your female clients as well? Yeah. Detox, like toxins in our environment are such a huge issue. I had crazy issues with it in Toronto myself. And it was just terrible because I had come out of this phase from being nearly dead from metabolic disease to thriving just to be thrown back in that position of nearly feeling dead again. So our environments are so important to us and the products that we use and the quality of foods that we put in our body because it, you know, 
it can really kill you. It's quite terrifying and environmental toxins. But we do generally see some detoxing in general. It can come in the form of loose stools. We detox primarily through <laughs> breast milk. Not all of us are breastfeeding, so then through sweat and then through stools. So we'll see, you know, sort of women with increased perspiration and they're not really understanding why when they're fasting. We'll see the loose stools. We'll see joint pain, especially flank pain. When someone is new to fasting, I find that that tends to be a very common origin of where pains experience sort of bizarre headaches that don't seem to be tied to hydration, sodium, magnesium levels. So detoxing is fairly common. Um, we usually encourage people to ride it out if they can. I know a couple of our team members will encourage some activated charcoal. It's not necessarily a binder, but it does help like a binder in terms of uh, getting some of the toxins out, minimizing symptoms and side effects. Well, this has just been an invaluable conversation. It's always a pleasure to connect with you. How can listeners find you on social media, all the valuable work that you're doing, as well as find your podcast? I know you, you and Nadia have started up a new podcast. I was listening to that earlier today. Yeah, that was at a whim. <laughs> tell you. So we have a, it's called the Fasting Method Podcast. And Cynthia, we definitely need to connect because like I said, we need more female practitioners talking and sharing and debunking these myths together. And we'd love to hear about your new book too. So the Fasting Method Podcast, it's wherever you find podcasts. And we've got a great team supporting us on that. And then all of our social platforms are at Fasting Method, or my personal ones are at Megan J. Ramos. And uh, our website is thefastingmethod.com. Well, awesome. Thank you as always for your time today. I love our conversations. We'll have to have you back again. Thanks, Cynthia. I appreciate it. And happy fasting, everyone. Thanks for listening to Everyday Wellness. If you loved this episode, please leave us a rating and review, subscribe, and remember, tell a friend. And if you want to connect with us online, visit the link in the show notes. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals, and all are manufactured in the United States. It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFAS, Teflon, and ceramic. And the best thing is that when used properly, the product's construction provides nonstick properties in a product that can be passed down through generations. Go to www.360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. Again, that's 360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. We've been using their products over the last several months and have really been pleased with not only the durability, but ease of cleanliness.